Hey, is this thing on? Welcome to Maddox on the Mic, a legal podcast presented by Maddox, an independent Australian law firm. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another season of the Day One podcast aimed at law students and prospective graduates. Um, I'm Declan Peacock, and I'm joined again for another, another year by Amelia Hunter. Hello, Amelia. Hi, Declan. Hi, everyone. They've let us back on the airway. Nice. I'm, I'm just as shocked surprise. as you are. <laughs> um, but this season we'll be doing something slightly different. So our first season was really aimed at the, the graduate recruitment process. Um, and then the, the second season we did was sort of some, some broad issues um, that are facing junior lawyers in the industry today. And then this season we've got a couple of episodes lined up where we're dealing with some sort of more specific industry-related issues Um, And our first one is an episode on climate change. Um, So we're joined today by Patrick Ibbotson. Uh, Amelia, do you want to give us a a little bit of background about Patrick? And then we'll let Patrick speak to his own skills and expertise. Absolutely. So um, welcome, Patrick, and thanks so much for joining us today. Just for for the benefit of all our listeners, uh, Patrick is a partner in the the Sydney public law team, working across a broad range of areas, but largely advising government and private sector organisations around compliance, procurement, uh, especially in relation to planning and environment. Patrick, you've worked extensively with the infrastructure and redevelopment projects, disposable disposal and management of industrial sites, remediation and compliance, dispute resolution, uh, local government issues, climate change, the list kind of just seems to keep going on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. So perhaps you can give us a a bit of a more personal insight into your practice and and how you ended up with Atmatix and, and, you know, your your day-to-day work. Okay, well, thanks, uh, Amelia and Declan, and hello, everybody who's listening. I've been practising in environmental law since 1987. I started my, uh, my, my time as a lawyer at, uh, at what was then Dawson Waldron, which became Blake Dawson Waldron, which is now Ashurst, uh, and I was, I was there for 23 years. Uh, I was a partner for 13 of those years. Uh, and most of the work that I did was in the um, infrastructure space, getting approvals for large projects and contaminated land remediation works. So uh, in the environmental space, I was doing a lot of work with Defence and uh, also with uh, T Services, who was the leading remediation contractor in the country. And uh, during that period, climate change was a an issue which was gradually uh, lurking in the background and then emerging into the foreground. Uh, but in Australia, it's been a, a space which has been challenging for people to get a grasp of because of the political debates around it. Uh, I moved to Maddox a bit over 12 years ago. I've kept doing the same sorts of things I was doing. Uh, I do uh, quite a lot of work for the state government um, on approvals for projects I do transactional work. I do work for the um, for various local councils as well and some work for a number of, number of industrial clients. The point you make about the climate change conversation in Australia being quite a political one is really quite interesting. I suppose you're, you, you get a very up-close view of, of, of how organisations and government departments are dealing with climate change and because you've been practicing for such a long period of time in this area you've got probably got a pretty good insight is the 
the industry approach to dealing with climate change, does that mirror the political debate in the sense that it's been a quite a slow burn, um, but now it's really starting to become an issue at the forefront of, of, of organisations' minds as it is in the public's mind now? Or has that been sort of a more ongoing process or is it sort of dependent on the government of the day? What's sort of the, the change in your practice with the, the changing climate change debate? Yeah, so we have found it's an area that waxes and wanes. The politics of it have been unhelpful uh, for people who want to actually see uh, the issues being addressed. And they appear in this election to continue to be somewhat unhelpful. Uh, there's been limited legislation since the, uh, the Rudd government introduced what was uh, then badged by the opposition, a carbon tax. The legislation has been minimal. Uh, the coalition government, of course, repealed most of that legislation. And today, the main, the main legislation is either uh, the NGERS Act, which is the National Greenhouse Energy Reporting Scheme, and, and the Carbon Farming Act, uh, which sets up the Commonwealth's overarching scheme to try and incentivise the reduction of, of emissions. But those issues primarily relate to uh, very large emitters, and they do go to the business fundamentals of some of those companies rather than to the their legal compliance. The issues around uh, legal compliance um, have become um, interestingly more acute for uh, some of the clients in the local government space where they're now faced with issues like, well, how do we approve something that might be in a bushfire zone in five years' time? Or how do, what do we do about um, approving a development that could be subject to coastal erosion? So it, it, the multi-headed beast that it is keeps popping up in, in different areas. Financiers also have had an interesting run with uh, climate change issues in that... Uh, they, they see this as a significant risk, which they need to take into account when um, assessing the counterparty risk on financing transactions. And so we see a bit of that. But again, it becomes largely a technical issue rather than a legal issue uh, for them, making sure that they've understood what the, uh, the physical risks actually are that their clients are facing. Did that answer your question, Declan? <laughs> no, it, it did. And it is it is interesting when you think about the this sort of the areas that it, it does cross over. And I think another recent example is the the conversation around the recent floods in, in northern New South Wales and, and Queensland and whether what the role of insurers and the government is in, in that space where there's a the, the trend that these sort of severe climate events will continue to happen and what what role people have in, insu in, in insurance coverage and that sort of thing. So it really does seem to cross pretty much every area of practice. Yeah. But in terms of what you're, you're seeing in the, you know, in... I suppose, looking optimistically, I think this will, it's becoming a, an election issue as much as there are areas of the political sphere that wouldn't like it to be as big of an election issue as it, it may be shaping to be. But coming out of that and in the next, in the next five or 10 years, what do you sort of see as the, the growth areas in different industries and sectors because of climate change? Well, I'll give you a, 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 an immediate example uh, of an issue that's come up in the last few months, which does overlap with what you were just talking about with flooding, uh, where one of my clients is a, a local council and the state government has required that the councils progressively review their flood, their flood modelling. That leads to 
um, review of the planning controls that apply to land uh, in the local government area, uh, which leads to houses that previously were not flood affected, possibly now being flood affected. And of course, how does a, a council who uh, has to operate within its community and is beholden to uh, its constituents who vote for the councillors, uh, how does the, the council manage that, that issue? Uh, and the, uh, the risk for the, for the councils is significant. They need to make sure that they've got the modelling right and they make, need to make sure they've got the controls right and they need to explain it well to the community. Uh, and uh, this is going to be an issue for, for them increasingly over the next uh, two decades and it impacts property developers and, it imp and it's not just about flooding, it's also about bushfire issues and about coastal erosion. So I think we'll see a lot more focus on um, the potential liabilities of um, government agencies granting approvals. In terms of the, the, big, the big sort of trends, I think there's probably uh, three major ones. The first one is going to be uh, at some point uh, there's going to have to be legislation to uh, more thoroughly uh, control emissions uh, in Australia. Uh, it doesn't really matter what the, today's politics are going to be. The international pressure, I think, will lead us to that to that outcome. So that means that industry households need to be starting to get ready for that by looking at how they're using energy, looking at how they can be more efficient. The next one is a, a, an issue around uh, duties of care uh, and what the good faith obligations that count that councils and other government agencies may have to um, their people who are impacted by their decisions. And we saw a recent example of this in the federal court over the last 18 months in the Sharma decision, where at the first instance, Justice Bromberg held that the Minister for the Environment, the Commonwealth Minister, when approving a mine, did have a duty of care to a group of school children uh, for impacts that may, may affect their lives in many years' time. That 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 decision was overturned on appeal, but the appeal judges had to work very hard at it. And it was interesting to see how they unpicked Justice Bromberg's reasoning. But I think that's the thin edge of the wedge. That's, that raises a question about intergenerational equity and principles of ecologically sustainable development. What does today's society owe to the societies in the future and how does the law cope with cope with that it's not a the law's not well placed to uh, to deal with those issues third trend uh, that uh, is likely to come is the concept of extended producer responsibility as a country that exports coal uh, currently uh, when we're approving coal mining projects uh, and gas projects, the arguments that are put forward uh, in favour of, of the project say, well, uh, yes, there's going to be greenhouse gas emissions um, in three scopes. The first scope is the direct emissions from the mine, the second from the logistics chains and the um, uh, power used in the, in the mine sites, and the third being the burning of the coal. And the third scope is usually responded to by saying that, well, the countries we're selling coal to will uh, be themselves parties to the Paris Agreement and offset those emissions, so we don't need to be concerned about them. Uh, but I don't know that that is logically correct. Uh, we, we don't know exactly where the coal that is mined here gets burned. It, uh, 
can be on-sold. Uh, and we don't know whether or not the markets into which we sell coal uh, will in fact have adequate offsetting mechanisms. Uh, so it seems to me that at some point we're going to have to bite the bullet and say, well, we need to track through how the coal's being used and be responsible about uh, ensuring that uh, emissions are in fact offset. Uh, and that way the um, the coal industry could continue. And if it doesn't, it uh, will, will find itself under increasing pressures uh, politically in, in society, which would be unfortunate because it's a very important part of the economy. Thanks, Patrick. That's, a, I think, a really good um, backdrop ag- against which we can um, start getting into more of what, what your team does in this space and how you see these trends and these, these broad issues kind of, you know, manifesting in, in the work that you do every day and that the work uh, Maddox is seeing come through. Yeah, so again, what we're, you know, the work that we're doing uh, probably falls into a few categories uh, in transactions. So when we're supporting the um, corporate team in M&A deals or financing arrangements, these issues pop up as risks that need to be fought through. If you're uh, managing um, a transaction where, which is a merger of two large entities, does that tick over into a threshold which requires reporting uh, of, of greenhouse gases or in the future will it uh, increase their combined uh, carbon footprint so that there are new obligations that might apply to them? The, um, the work we do for the um, governments, uh, in particular councils around um, planning for uh, flooding and and bushfire protections. Some new work that we're beginning to see around um, ESG, so environment, uh, social governance. Um, it's something I used to do back in the 90s, but it's coming back again where boards are interested in understanding what their governance obligations are going to be. All of that ties into a beginning uh, of a, a recognition of the importance of principles of ecologically sustainable development, which are, have been in legislation for the last 30 years but are now beginning to actually get some teeth with decisions such as the Sharma decision in the federal court. And people are starting to say, well, what do these really mean for, for government decision makers? And what do they really mean if we commit to them as a business? And I think, Patrick, just so for, for our, our listeners, this podcast aimed at sort of junior lawyers entering the industry. So I suppose with, with those sort of growth areas in our practice, and it's only going to become a bigger a bigger issue and require more sort of thought what would your sort of if, if you're a junior lawyer who's passionate about climate change or being involved in this space is there things you should be reading or doing or trying to incorporate into the work that you're you're seeing as a junior lawyer to to become to, to get across these these issues and these skills what would your advice to, to our listeners be yeah it's an interesting question because um, i've seen in my time a lot of people throw themselves into uh, climate change issues with great enthusiasm and find that the the market there is uh, is difficult because a lot of it is technical rather than legal. So I think as a, a lawyer, the really important thing is to focus on what the client's needs are and what the uh, cutting-edge legal issues are going to be for those clients. So rather than being um, entirely focused on the the climate change impacts and the need um, to do something about it, ask a more focused questions about, well, what does uh, climate change mean for a particular set of clients? 
what does the likely policy and legislative response mean for a particular set of clients? And uh, what is it that lawyers bring to the table uh, are in this space? Uh, and you know, those skills that lawyers can bring uh, include the, the sort of forensic analysis of risks, understanding of the uh, common law constructs of duties of care and the processes of good decision-making and apply those in the context of the client's needs. Excellent. Thanks, Patrick. And Patrick, what what kind of internal uh, Maddox systems and um, and processes do we do we have in place that address these climate change issues that we're seeing and that that really go to the heart of that issue? Uh, we used to have a, a process uh, of doing a very comprehensive uh, review of Maddox's uh, environmental impacts, including its carbon footprints. Uh, and that's become more standardised now with a group of other law firms. In terms of the clients, we've been uh, we've set up a working group uh, on climate change to go through and and focus on uh, the client needs, uh, different sectors in which we operate, uh, and work out how we can best assist clients navigate their way through uh, what's sure to be a difficult period over the next uh, five to ten years. My team has uh, regularly published articles on uh, climate change issues, and we recently. Uh, decided to publish what we call the Climate Change Review, which was a compendium of a lot of the issues that had uh, come up over the last 12 months, uh, including uh, the the uh, Conference of the Parties in Glasgow and the uh, various decisions in the federal court and elsewhere about uh, climate change-related issues. And we've, we've put that out to clients with a view to engaging with clients in the debate. Uh, it, the really important thing is to try and stay um, focused on the client's needs and to understand as best we can uh, what we risk for being posed. And one way to do that is to uh, be engaging with the clients through those sorts of publications and presentations uh, and, and just meeting with them and talking through the issues so that we're not... Uh, sort of just coming of a one-size-fits-all, um, you-can-do-better approach, but rather something tailored to their needs. Well, thank you for that, Patrick. I think that's all the questions we had for you today. We'll be sure to put the um, the the journal, the, the publication that you mentioned in our, in our notes for the show. So if any of our listeners want to check that out, they'll be able to find that in the links. Thank you for joining us today for the very comprehensive and insightful update on, on climate change in the law and what Maddox is doing in that space. It was really interesting. And although I work for the, the business, I've, I've learned a lot. So I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you. Absolutely. Yep. Thanks, Declan and Amelia. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Patrick. And yes, thank you to all our, uh, all our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, don't, uh, don't hesitate, sorry, to, to reach out to Declan or myself or a member of the Maddox team. Um, and of course, if you liked the episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, Declan. We'll, um, we'll see if they let us back on for another one. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much. <laughs>